Someone was telling me that on Pinterest, they have a posting of 40 classic French meals that you must try before you die. And apart from the well-known French onion soup, I'm not sure how French it is, but you must try a French onion before you die, escargot, and uh, crepes, and veil. So all of these wonderful things you ought to try. Juicy morsels of frog legs will go a long way. I won't give you the, the entire list of things you must try. This evening, I want to encourage us to try not 40 things, but really one. And the one thing that I would like us to try, and all of us to try before we die, is not a meal, but a duty, an obligation, and that is to be a witness to Christ. We live in a current, in a current situation where this notion of bearing witness, of speaking of our faith, has largely been frowned upon and ridiculed out of the marketplace. But it ought to be borne in mind that wherever we are in our station and position in life, we are called upon to be a witness. One thing we ought to do before we die is to witness to Jesus Christ. In fact, the call to witness is found in that very well-known passage in Matthew 28, where Jesus, in verse 18 of Matthew 28, we're told he came and spoke to them, that is his disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is how the Gospel of Matthew concludes. It concludes with the commissioning of his disciples on a mountain in Galilee. It appears that after Jesus was raised from the dead, that he performed miracles in Jerusalem, showing himself with many signs and wonders to the apostles. And he commanded them to await him in Galilee. The first portion of the chapter deals with the details of the resurrection of Jesus and the attempt by the Jewish authority to discredit the resurrection by bribing the Roman soldiers to disseminate false information. That is to say that Jesus was not raised from the dead, but that the disciples had come while they were sleeping and stole the body. Now, that argument has persisted and persisted in the first century, but it hasn't borne a lot of traction for the very simple reasons that if it is not a credible excuse for the disappearance of Jesus. For had they been sleeping, they surely could not be sleeping and known who had come and stolen the body, or that the body was stolen at any time at all. They were sleeping. But that was then the first part of the chapter, verses 1 to 15. 
The next portion sees them, then the disciples, in Galilee, on this mountain. And there is no certainty as to what mountain Matthew refers to here. Some think it was a Mount of Transfiguration, but there can be no clarity as to that. It is on this mountain that the disciples are assembled. And our Lord Jesus comes. First of all, I want you to view the passage and to view what is said here. First of all, you ought to consider the affirmation of comprehensive authority and power. Jesus appears in verse 18. And there, we are told, he came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The affirmation of comprehensive authority and power. When Jesus appears, in verse 17, we are told that when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. This theme of the worship of Christ runs throughout Matthew, chapter 2, verse 11. We know that the wise men worshipped him. In chapter 8, verse 2, chapter 9, verse 2, and chapter 14, verse 33, and 15, 25, there is this worship of Christ in the gospel of Matthew and in the other gospels. Now, R.T. France, the New Testament commentator, does indicate that the worship of Christ in the gospels perhaps was somehow different from the worship of the later church. So that the worship you see of people falling down, people who needed miracles would come before him and worship, bow down before him, the same word worship, perhaps did not worship him the way the later church did. And there's some merit in what Franz says. But it surely does not stand when it concerns the worship given to Christ after the resurrection. For clearly here in our passage, they are worshiping him. Not that he had done any miracle, if the idea is that he appeared suddenly, that might have been miraculous. But they see him and they worship him because he is a risen Christ. It is the same language that is used of the worship of God by David in the Old Testament. The same verb that is used of worshiping God. And so clearly, with the background of the first century in Judaism and the, the Shema that God alone is to be worshipped. Surely, then they must have acknowledged the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They worshipped him while some doubted. It is then that Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He declares that all authority, and the word that he uses is, is exousia. Exousia means two things. On one hand, it means right. The right to do something. And on the other hand, exousia means power. All authority, all right, and all power has been given to me. There are some monarchs who have rights. They are ceremonial. They are ceremonial. They have the right to be a monarch. But they have no power. The Queen of England is a monarch, but she does not rule the parliament and the prime minister and the cabinet. 
These are those who rule. Jesus, however, is different. He comes to his disciples and he says, All right and all power, all exousia has been given to me. He's declaring then his comprehensive authority and power. And he notes first certain facts about his authority, about his power. First of all, this authority and power that he has is that which is conferred upon him. In fact, in the original, in verse 18, given to me is emphatic because it begins the verse, given to me all authority and power. Given to me. It means that this authority that Jesus possesses is conferred. And because it is in the passive voice, given to me, has been given to me, it means that it is God who gives it to him. It is the divine passive. This, this authority that he possesses, he receives from God. And here, our Lord is not denying that he is God the Son, and by right, he is the ruler of the universe. But what he's saying is distinctly important. Because he's saying that as the God-man, notice, notice how in our passage it says Jesus came and spoke to them. It is then the risen Christ, the God-man, who has now been given the right and the authority to rule. Previous to this, when he existed in eternity, he ruled as a son of God. That was his by right. But now, as God and man together, in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, God has conferred on him, on this man, this, this God-man Jesus Christ, the authority and the power to rule the universe. And so his authority is conferred by God. He did not grasp this by himself. It is given to him by the Father as a reward for his obedience. He has purchased this as the risen Christ by his blood. And so Christ rules by right, and he rules by reward, reward for his obedience that he, has, that he has rendered to his father. And secondly, he talks about this authority, and he mentions the universality of this authority. For he says, all authority has been given to me. It talks about the completeness of his power and his rule. He has authority, and he fleshes out what he means by all authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And in heaven and on earth is a figure of speech that it means simply everywhere, everywhere in the universe. Indeed, he reigns over the spiritual beings, over angels and principalities and powers and thrones and dominions. He rules over man, those on earth, political rulers and social structures, Nations and individuals, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so we see this affirmation of the comprehensive authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, you will note the commission to make disciples of all nations. It is precisely because the Lord Jesus Christ is the sovereign ruler of the universe that now he can commission them. And we see this commission in verse 19. Go therefore 
and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is what we call the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, when you look at this, you would think that there are four separate activities that are given. In fact, we need to understand what is taking place here in the, ver in the verse. In verse 19, the main verb, that is the verb in the imperative, is to make disciples. If you ask them, what is Jesus asking them to do in the Great Commission? He's asking them to make disciples. That's the main verb. Go therefore and make disciples. The main verb is to make disciples. The other verbs that you see there are parti participles. That is, that is, go is a participle, baptizing is a participle, and teaching is a participle. Now, we have been over this. This is, a, this is a, unfortunately a, a little detour in grammar, but we need to understand what is taking place. We know that in Greek grammar, the, partic the, the participle qualifies the main verb. In other words, the main verb is to make disciples, and the participles tell you how this is to, do, to be done. Make disciples of all nations, first of all, by going. That's what our Lord means. They must go. Go, therefore. It means that they must take the message of the gospel to others. This calls for activity, for labor, for seeking out the lost. Make disciples of all nations by going. They must be evangelists. They must seek to turn the wayward and the lost to the Lord Jesus Christ. And to do that, they must go. They, they must not sit around and wait for unbelievers to seek them out. They must go seek out the unbelievers. The second thing they're to do if they are to make disciples, not only must they go, he says, but they must baptize them. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. You do that by going and you do that by baptizing. Baptizing them. Baptism is indeed the outward profession of the inward faith and union between the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 6, 1 and following. It is in baptism that we identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as we are submerged in the water, we signal that we have died with Christ to this world. And when we arise from the water, we also signal that we are risen with Christ to a newness of life. That all believers are to be baptized. Because it is the outward and visible form of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that baptism is to be by immersion. The New Testament has no ground and provides no data on infant baptism and no data on baptism by sprinkling. In fact, the, these two, two terms are different. They are to be baptized, and it is by baptism that they are joined to the visible church. In the, in the 
sermon by Peter on the day of Pentecost, those who were converted were baptized and they were added to the church. And so baptism was also the means by which they were physically, at least visibly so, united to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, it, he says, that in making disciples of all the nations, not only of those who were Jewish, but of, all, of Gentiles, Christians cannot be anti-Semitic. The gospel is for Jews, but it is also for Gentiles. And so he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them so that when they profess faith, you notice baptism follows believing, follows a commitment to Christ. But when they have made a commitment, they are to be baptized. And then he goes on and says that they are to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I want you to note that Jesus says that they are to be baptized in the name, singular. And then he lists in articular forms, he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so what we have here is a clear teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity. I know that there are those who say, well, the Trinity is not in the Bible. And by that they mean that the word Trinity is not a biblical term. You can't find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible. But just because the word Trinity does not, is not found in the Bible, the concept is there. And so you see the unity in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit shows you the unity of the Godhead, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But by using the article, the, three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is a distinction being made in the Godhead, in the persons of the Godhead, so that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. Yet they are one because they share one essence. They are to baptize them in the triune God, in the name of the triune God, to show that they are identified with God as he has revealed himself in the three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But not only are they to make disciples of all nations by going and by baptizing them in the name of the triune God, you notice he says that they are to be involved in teaching, verse 20. That's a third step that is involved in making disciples. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So that making disciples not only involves going, not only involves baptizing, but it involves teaching. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. This term, didescalo, that is to teach, refers to the imparting of specific content, a body of truth. In this instance, what they are to be taught is the charisma, the message of Jesus Christ, the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that the task of making disciples does not end with baptism, does not end with people becoming members of the church. Really, 
We have just begun to make disciples when they make a profession and enter the church. There must be this ongoing task of teaching. Didascalo is in the present tense. So that it means that we ought to be constantly, continually teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. Very interesting there that the, the participle that you have baptizing is in the aorist participle. The aorist participle simply refers to something which happened, doesn't tell if it continues. And I think that the reason why it says baptizing and use the aorist participle because you're not supposed to go on baptizing the same person over and over again. We do not mean, we don't believe in multiple baptisms of people who have come to faith. But when it comes to teaching, he doesn't use the aorist participle, which means a one-time act. He simply says, baptizing them present tense. Sorry, he says teaching them present tense, meaning that you are to go on and on teaching. And you are to teach them what? Teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. They are to be taught to observe. That is, they are to be taught to keep, to guard, to obey the things that the Lord Jesus Christ has taught them. Teaching them to observe, to keep, to obey Christ's instructions. You see, Christians are learners. Sometimes when you're driving in, in Europe, you will see somebody flying past you. And you, 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 when you look at the, the license plate, you see this big L. And you get a shiver. You say, this guy is a novice. You know, he's just gotten his license and he's driving so fast. You feel like pulling off the side of the road and let him go because he's a learner. You know, all of us as Christians, we are learners. We have a, a big L over our lives. You see, we have not arrived. And we must always be learning. You see, we, we are, in a sense, every Christian is a scholar. I understand that in present parlance, scholar refers to one who's an expert in a particular discipline. But the term scholar comes from the, the term that simply means a learner. And we, who are believers, are scholars in the sense that we are learners. But Jesus says that in making disciples, we are to be teaching them. To do what? To observe. So that the goal of making disciples is not to make them theologians. That our calling to make disciples, to witness to the lost so that they may be converted, that they may be baptized and join the church, is not to have amongst us mere scholars head laden with theological nuggets waiting to unload on some unsuspecting person. No, our goal is not to make of them scholars or theologians, but our goal is to make of them obedient people that they may observe, that they may do. We are not only to make them, our goal is not to make them those who know, but those who do, those who do the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, teaching them to observe the things, all things that I have commanded you. All things that I have commanded you. They are not to, they are not to say, Lord, you know, I, I'm not sure I, I, I quite like what you say about dealing with enemies, so I'm going to put it aside. No, they are to observe all things because they are under the authority 
and under the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. This statement, you know, has a hermeneutical significance for how one reads the Bible and how one reads and interprets the Old Testament. Because we are to make disciples of all nations, we are to baptize them, and we are to teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. The task of the believer is to obey Christ. And we are to obey what Christ has taught us through his apostles. It means that hermeneutically, it is the New Testament which has precedence over the Old Testament. That is, you and I are not to go to the Old Testament to follow its rules and regulations, except it has been interpreted and mandated to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, so that when you read your Bible, in a real sense, the prism through which you read the Bible is the New Testament and what we have received from Jesus Christ. That, that is vital. There are some people who give equal weight to both sides of the scriptures. The New Testament, however, takes precedence because Jesus says you are, to, you are to teach them to keep all that I have commanded you. It is in Jesus Christ and his teaching that the Old Testament is updated and enjoined upon us. We must read scripture, therefore, Christologically. We must understand that biblical revelation is not the same that it grows, that there is progressive revelation, the revelation given to Abraham and given to Moses and given to David is not the revelation that is given to us. We have a greater revelation. We are able to see the fullness of God's revelation in a way that Old Testament saints were not able to do. And therefore, we who stand at the end of the stream of biblical revelation must make sure that we are interpreting Scripture through Jesus Christ. They are therefore called, we see here, the commission to make disciples. But thirdly, we have seen the affirmation of Christ's authority. We have seen his commission to make disciples, which involves going and baptizing and teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. And thirdly now, we see the promise of Christ's continual presence in verse 20b. Teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and lo... I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Lo means look. It, it, it's, it's an exclamation. It's calling for attention. Lo, look. Take note. Lo, I am with you always. In fact, Jesus says something that I think is a little bit stronger than our text bear out. For in, in, a, re, in, in, in a real sense, he's, he says, I that is, I, with you, I am always. Grammatically, it sounds awkward. But there is this double emphasis upon I and I am. I, with you, I am always. It's the Lord's way of saying, I surely am with you. And lo, I am with you always. This is not merely a promise of God's future or Christ's future presence with his people, but an ironclad guarantee of present and continual remaining with his people. The Gospel of Matthew 
makes much of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a theme that also runs through Matthew. Jesus Christ is presented in Matthew as God's incarnate presence. God in flesh, God's incarnate presence. You see that in Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is interpreted or translated God with us. See, Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God in flesh. Jesus Christ is the one who comes in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. His name shall be called Emmanuel. Matthew points out not only that Christ is God's incarnate presence, he reveals him as God's saving presence. You see that, for instance, in, this, in the stilling of the storm, in Matthew 8, 23 to 27, Jesus', Jesus disciples are traveling across the Lake of Galilee when a storm suddenly arises and they are in peril because of the storm. And Jesus comes at night in this ferocious storm walking on the water. And what do they think? They think this is a ghost and they cry out in fear. Jesus now identifies himself and, and, and commands them, encourages them not to be afraid. And Peter, who is always impetuous, says, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come. Well, you know, you know, hint, hint, right? You know. Lord says, come. And Peter, I know we, we beat upon Peter, but you know, Peter does something that most of us will never do in our lifetime. This fellow walked on water. He stepped out of, this is a matter of great faith. You know, they are magicians, right, who, who, who are doing all kinds of stuff, right, trying to levitate and all kinds of stuff. But let them go on a lake. Let them go on Lake Ontario and let them walk out there. They can't. Peter steps out of the boat and walks. And as he looks around at the boisterous waves, he begins to sink, taking his eyes off Jesus. And he cries out in, in fear, Lord, help me. And Jesus reaches out his hand and catches him. And says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You see, he saved Peter. And when they got back into the boat, it was still. You see, Matthew presents Jesus as God's saving presence. Saves us not only from physical danger, but saves us from spiritual danger that is eternal separation from God. He is presented in Matthew as not only God's saving presence, but God's holy presence. For we see, for instance, Jesus saying, yes, I say to you, in this place there is one greater than the temple, he is one greater than the temple. He is God's holy presence who replaces, as I mentioned this morning, the temple. He's God's confirming presence. We, we see in Matthew 18, 24, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. That is a passage that is not given to us to suggest that wherever two Christians or three Christians gather, that is, that, that is the church itself. Nor does it mean that where two 
or three Christians come together and agree on whatever they do agree that God is going to help them. And I, I, so many times people have said to me, no, I want you to agree with me. I, I, I'm going to pray for something and I want you to agree with me because we are two or three people agree together. God is there in the middle. And I think, oh, dearest, dearest. That's not what it means. This word is written in the context of judgment, of church discipline. And it's talking precisely the fact that when, when those whom God has called and chosen to lead these people agree on a matter, especially that which revolves in, in moral issues and so on, that, that God confirms, that Christ confirms that decision. And so this is, this is not then to, to be used willy-nilly, but refers to the area of church discipline. And so he's God's confirming presence, confirming the decision that have been made that honors him, especially in moral areas. He's God's consummating presence. For in Matthew 26 and verse 29, we hear, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it anew with you in, the, in my Father's kingdom. He's God's presence who will bring, bring creation to its knee, who will consummate the salvation that he has won for his people. But here he says, Go! into all the world. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. Here our Lord promises them his empowering presence so that the reason that they are to go into the world it is because they don't only have the incarnate presence, not only do they have with them the saving presence of Christ and the holy presence of Christ, but they have with him there his empowering presence, the one who will be with them, the one who will help them in danger, the one who will give them strength in the time of suffering and toil and hardship, the one who says, I will be with you always, that I will never leave you. I will be with you unto the end of the age. It means simply unto eternity. I will be with you. This is the basis then of the call for them to go and to make disciples of all nations. Because of Christ's empowering presence that is always with them. My friends, let me begin to wind this up. You must consider the transcendence of Christ. One of the great temptations of our present age is to adopt the zeitgeist, the ethos of the moment, that prevailing spirit that, that seeks to view Christ in deistic terms. That is, that is, we look at Christ as one who has come into the world to save us and who has gone back to heaven, but he's rather distant rather separate from what we're doing here, not very interested in what is going on here. We need to know that the Christ that we serve is the Lord of heaven and earth, that he is the king of glory. We live in an age where there are many within the church who are pining for the good old days. They lament the weakness and the powerlessness of the present day church. And I would suggest to you that there is much that needs to be fixed with the church today. But we need to know that the one we serve 
is the transcendent Christ, the one who says all authority, all right, and all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That the Savior that we serve is the King of glory. That there is no other power above him. That he is the one to whom we appeal. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. You need to know the transcendence of Christ if you are to bear witness in this generation. You see, as Christians, we may, we may be weak, and that is okay, because our king is strong. You must know the transcendence of Jesus. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And secondly, you must remember the benevolence, not only the transcendence, but the benevolence of Christ. That Christ, by commanding the disciples to go and to make disciples of all nations, demonstrate his benevolence, his kindness, his love. You must remember the benevolence of Christ. That Christ cares for the lost. The point has been made by Christopher Wright in his work in the Old Testament and many others that God is a missionary God. You need to know that, my dear friends. God is a missionary God. When Adam and Eve sinned, we have the first missionary enterprise ever taken, that has ever taken place in the history of the world was undertaken by God himself. What I'm saying is that the first missionary that we have ever seen anywhere is God. Because he goes into the garden saying, Adam, where art thou? He's seeking, seeking him. And you see that God intends to save. Because he brings these two to repentance. And he clothes them with the skin of an animal. A symbol of the righteousness with which he will clothe those who turn to him in repentance and faith. He's a missionary God. And so when he had destroyed the world, there is a second creation, if you like, onward from Genesis chapter 6 and onward, a second creation after he has already destroyed the world, out of water he makes a new world. And he sends out a new Adam, who is Noah, to begin a new race. To reach the lost. To see that men and women are converted. He goes and he calls Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans. Because he intends to make a new people. To whom he will demonstrate himself and his mercy and his grace. He calls Israel. In Exodus 19 he calls Israel to be a priestly people. They were God's test case. They were supposed to live among pagans and show them what it is to be followers of Yahweh. You see, God is a missionary God. And when they began to conceive of themselves as though salvation belongs only to them, God dispersed them amongst the nations so that they may bring the word of God even to the pagans. God is a missionary God. And you know that he's a missionary God because in the fullness of time, he sent Jesus who comes as the ultimate missionary, who comes to seek and to save the lost. And therefore, for us to reach the lost, 
We are following in the vein of God himself. We are doing God's work and God's business. You and I, because God is a missionary God, are to be missional in our vocation. We are to seek to reach the lost. We are to seek to go. And Peter Berger, the sociologist in Rumors of Angels, Rumors of Angels says that there are signals of transcendence in life. And by that, he means signals of transcendence. He's referring to signs of the presence of God in human experience. And he talks about God revealing himself. In, 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 in our propensity as human beings for order and uh, for play, in, in the fact that we have hope, Signals of transcendence. But you see, God has not merely revealed himself to us in signals of transcendence. He has revealed himself in the transcendent one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to take this message to the world, the world that needs to hear about Jesus Christ, who came into this world to save sinners. We are to go. We are to go. We may not all become missionaries foreign mission, foreign missionaries. We may not all be called to do that. But we are called to go. There were those like William Carey, who is the father of modern mission. We are told he was influenced by a number of men like Andrew Fuller and David Brainard, particularly reading his journals, David Brainard. And he was one, we know, who at one meeting of the particular Baptists asked the question as a young man if Christians were responsible to evangelize the world. And we are told, ostensibly, even though it is denied by some, that John Ryland, in that meeting, responded to Carrier, having, after he heard the question, should we be responsible to evangelize the heathens, John Ryland said to him, young man, sit down. When God is pleased to save the heathens, he will do so without your help or mine. Well, we know that Kerry did not take that advice because he went to India. And today, to a very large extent, the work of grace in India may be traced to this one man. Many after him have gone and have done tremendous work. But this man with great courage and love for the lost has followed the Lord Jesus Christ's command to go. We must go because our Savior is a benevolent Savior who seeks to save the lost. Henry Martin also went to India and he went to Iran. In his diaries we read of him seeking to, con to, 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 to bring a man to conversion, a man called Said Ali. And everything that Henry Martin tells this fellow seems to be wasted for he's not impacted, he does not respond. And in the conversation, Said Ali turns to Henry Martin and he asks him, why this earnestness? Why are you so earnest to see me converted from Islam to Christianity? Why this earnestness? And Henry Martin responded, for fear that you should remain in hell forever. My dear friends, 
our concern that men and women will remain in hell forever should drive us to go, to speak to those whom God has placed in our way, to bear witness to Jesus Christ. We are, we have a calling, and because of love for Jesus Christ, imitation of Jesus Christ, and love for the souls of men, we must speak. We dare not be silent. Men and women are on their way to a Christless eternity. Signals of transcendence. They point to the one alone who is transcendent, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you try anything in 2015, try saying something for Jesus Christ. Try saying to your neighbor and your friend, and those that you have in your family who are converted, Remind them that they are sinners under the wrath of God. But remind them that there is good news, that there is a Savior who came into the world to save sinners. Demand that they repent and believe in him. You are not called to save men. You cannot. No one, no human being can. But you are called to be a witness. And while you may not be able to go to mission as a missionary to some other foreign country, Let's pray for those who are there. Let's support them financially. Let's support and pray for the seminary, which is in the business of equipping men and women to be missionaries and men to be pastors. If there's one thing that is lamentable in this conservative Baptist context in Canada is the very scant regard for theological training. I am more and more amazed at how Christians, not just Baptists, but right across the spectrum, have a waning interest in training pastors. And you ask the question, how do churches expect to have trained men? They want educated pastors. They want brilliant pastors. They want pastors who can preach and even who can turn a few light bulbs and change a few bulbs here or there. They want pastors who have many skills. And they must be good counselors. Can't go off just off giving off the cuff remarks and counsel. Where do they get them from? They, they, they're not found on trees. They don't grow by themselves. They must be trained. And so it is a task, I believe, if we are involved in this business of making disciples, to support those who are in the forefront of the battle. My dear friends, when I hear of the Supreme Court's decision regarding assisted suicide, I believe that this country needs more and more preachers of the word of God. And our business is to pray while the harvest is ripe that God will send workers into the harvest. And we have a seminary right here that needs your prayer, that needs your help, that God will raise up another generation of men Men and women who went out before, those who went into Quebec, even in the hostility of Roman Catholicism and preached the gospel, that there will be another generation in Canada that will go forth to preach God's word without fear or compromise, whatever it costs. It's our business to support the work of the Lord. And we are to do so 
in the full assurance that we do not go forth in our power and we do not go forth alone. We have with us the one who says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth, end of the age. I am with you. The same God that was with Joseph, a very interesting text. He was with Joseph in Potiphar's house, and he was successful. He was with Joseph in prison, and he was successful in prison. Because the presence of the Lord, the same God who was with Joseph, is the same God who is with you. With you with everlasting arms, with all the resources you need. May God so help us that we will heed the call to mission which is an unfinished task and say something for the glory of God and for the benefit and the nourishment of men's heart. May God so help us for Jesus' sake.